in this episode of Collective Reject. It deals directly with racism and hatred, which I thought, okay, that's enough. But it also deals with sorrow and trauma. Whether you a hero or a villain, expedition leads to crazy feelings. Every page I turn, you know I got a feeling. New stories everywhere, busting out the comic strip. Story so good, it got me on a power trip. Crazy battles got my mind in a total race. Page one, the original story takes place. So gear up for the new storyline. Writing so good, it sends chills down your spine. Collect or reject, 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 collect or reject. Greetings, true believers. Welcome to Collect or Reject, a show about comics, or more specifically, lesser known comics. My name is Mark Withers, and I'm honored and privileged to be your host today. Here's how it works. Each week, a guest and I will read five issues of a pre-selected title, and based on those five issues, we'll try to determine whether or not it should be added to your poll list. Today's comic, Bitter Root, by Sanford Green, David F. Walker, and Chuck Brown. Joining me today to talk about it is not only a longtime personal friend of mine, but is also an established comic book artist in his own right with titles like Schmuck, Hurricane Wilma, and Primates Everywhere. Ladies and gentlemen, Omar Angulo. Omar, thanks for being on the show. Hey, Mark. Great to be here, man. Thanks for having me. I got to say, it's incredibly poignant for me because I credit you with actually starting my journey in terms of like independent comics. I remember a long time ago... This was well into the 80s. You and I had gone to go see Akira. I don't know if you remember this, but you and I went to see Akira one time. And on the way there, we had a conversation about Marvel versus DC. And I was strictly a Marvel guy. And I was like, oh, DC's trash. Marvel's the only one doing serious comics. And then you started talking to me about all these other comics that I had never heard of before, like 2000 AD and Lone Wolf and Cub and all these other books. And I was like, what is that? And then you started talking to me about these other comic book companies like Dark Horse and things like that. And I looked into that and that is what sort of propelled me to sort of explore things that were not superhero titles that were a little more serious. I feel like, you know, long story short, I probably wouldn't have this particular podcast if I hadn't had that conversation with you today. So I just wanted to say thanks for that. Oh man. Wow. Um, that, that just blows me away. <laughs> All right. Good night, everybody. Thank you. <laughs> I kind of remember that, too, because at that point, and I, I think I probably agreed with you, too, because I was no fan of DC. <laughs> you know, discovering like Lone Wolf and Cub was like this anchor that, that took me out of the big two and especially, you know, the Marvel stuff. At the time, not realizing why they had to like revamp their universe every decade or so. Right. Um, yeah, I, I remember that. And that was a great time, too, because I just remember it was like, all right, like finding like Eclipse stuff and, you know, Dark Horse stuff was fun because it was like it was still within the Marvel world, but it was like it, it wasn't anchored in that like spandex. Right. And that's a great memory. Like you just <laughs> wow, man, I, I remember going to go see Akira and I remember that conversation. Wow, that was a while back. So yeah, I know we want to get into this book. Spoiler alert, we both are pretty big fans of this particular title. But before we actually get into it, I wanted to sort of give our listeners an opportunity to kind of get to know you a little bit. So if you would just talk a little bit about your background and how you actually got into comics. Um, I, I was born in Colombia, 
Barranquilla, Colombia. Um, but I only lived there for a year. And I had lived in Puerto Rico two years before that. But my one year in Colombia, it's funny because I have memories going back to then when I was three. And I used to collect this comic called Caliman. And I've looked him up. I need to I need to actually own a copy. I don't own any copies now. But he's this character that was big in South America, uh, in Latin America. He's this kind of like fakir, like Hindu guy with the, the turban and, you know, the the Sikh kind of like emerald and weapons mm-hmm. and that. But he was, he's like a Batman character, detective, but he also had these yogi skills and, you know, top martial artist and that sort of thing. That was really, that was like my intro into comics that I remember. I didn't really pick up another comic book until maybe three or four years later uh, when I was five and Star Wars came out. That affected everything I did. And to connect comics to what I do as an artist, up until that time I was drawing, you know, sunsets and pictures of my parents and, you know, holding their kids. And maybe I was drawing some war stuff, you know, tanks and airplanes and things like that. After Star Wars, everything became about telling a story in a picture. So I was trying to reenact elements that I remembered or, you know, moments that I remembered from the movie into singular drawings. You know, remember, it's pre-video, pre-on-demand, you know, right. unless it got and it did. It got re-released, I think, for a couple of years. I think it got re-released in 78 and 79 and then Empire came out in 80. Um, my, my parents didn't take the re-releases. So for me, it was like, I knew who the characters were, what they looked like. So I can just start drawing these stories of my own. Nothing like a full comic or anything. It would be like a page and maybe like three panels of a story. But that was enough for me to play with and to kind of entertain myself with. I could draw a direct line from what I do now to those days. I do the annual Day of the Dead theme artwork. Oh, wow. Um, here in South Florida that gets used to promote the event. And I, I sell that as prints and, and merchandise as well and all that. It's the same exact thing. I'm trying to tell some story through a lot of symbolism, through everything that gets on the page. And that's directly related to, you know, watching Star Wars. <laughs> I want, like, how would I tell that story? Or, you know, or what story would I tell with those toys? You know? Career-wise, I've mostly been an illustrator. I've told some of my stories. That's really where I'm focusing or pushing my attention now. Full-time writing and drawing of my stories. Not full-time, but focusing full-time on that. Right on, man. Well, without further ado, let's jump right into Bitter Root. Now, I know that I said earlier on that this is easily one of my favorite books I'm really bad at describing what these stories are like. So I'm going to let Wikipedia do that for me. Okay. So it says in the 1920s, the Harlem Renaissance is in full swing and only the Sangurai family can save New York and the world from supernatural forces threatening to destroy humanity. But the once great family of monster hunters has been torn apart by tragedies and conflicting moral codes. The Sangurai family must heal the wounds of the past and move beyond their differences or sit back and watch a force of unimaginable evil ravage the human race. Now, I could not describe that any better. What is your overall take on Bitter Root as a comic book series? Without, I mean, without giving anything away, um, one of the things that blew me away about it was 
like Afrofuturism isn't like a new thing in comics. You know, we, we've we've seen it, especially the boom, you know, in the last decade. But um, there's a term that um, I'm not sure if David Walker, or Chuck Brown in the back of issue one introduced called ethnogothic. It's a great way to describe what they've done with the genre. It flips a lot of the horror tropes, uh, especially where they're founded on, uh, totally flips it on its head. Typically you have, you know, the other or the foreigner or the stranger being like the monstrous, grotesque thing. I almost don't want to say it because it could turn people off right off the bat without understanding it. It deals directly with racism and hatred, which I thought, okay, that's enough. But it also it deals with sorrow and trauma in a really interesting way because there's been comics like Watchmen, I think that, you know, gives you like the Tulsa race massacre or something like that as this historical thing. The way Bitter Root handles those issues in such a creative way where, um, you know, the monsters are humans that are affected by hatred and racism. Right. But it's not just in a one-way form. Um, some of the characters that we encounter within that the first five story arc is is also based in that sorrow and trauma. So this family that's been curing people who've been infested with this are now dealing with this form that's incurable. There's the purifiers and there's the ones that just want to uh, what's the word that he uses? Amputate. Right. It's this really intelligent way and creative way, I should say, more than intelligent. I mean, it's extremely intelligent, but more than that, it's, it's extremely creative and very um, entertaining how they handle issues. They put this whole story in Harlem's 1920s Renaissance, that the family is dealing with the like symbolic struggles of the 60s equality movement you know, encompassed in this family drama. So you, you're not getting beat over the head. And that, that's why I was like, okay, I'm kind of reluctant to say it directly. But what works so well about how it's handled is that it's not an agenda-driven story. I mean, it's extremely topical and relevant to today, but it is 100% doing it in a creative, original, and fresh way. But it's done beautifully. And I mean, the artwork, as an artist, the first time I went through the series, I was just looking at the artwork, just blown away at how simple some of it is, but how effective all of it is. It's, it's very cinematic. Um, and, and I don't know if you want to jump into that yet. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is definitely like a freeform discussion and everything. So my general feeling of it, I think that you kind of nailed it. They do a really good job of breaking down the happenings of that time without hitting you over the head and making those like the focal point of the story. Like they mention how, you know, some of the characters mention how they had lost people during the red summer, but they don't yeah. go into what the red summer is. They just yeah. mention it in passing and make that an organic experience so that if you were interested in it, you could take it upon yourself to look that up. And the same thing about Tulsa, they'll just talk about Tulsa as an event and not a city. And I thought that that was a really cool approach because it keeps the focus on the actual story, but it gives you these nuances that make it feel more realistic and makes the dialogue feel more natural. I also love that each of the characters is somebody that you know, even though this is a family that is at this point more than a hundred years old, 
that's my auntie. That's my uncle. That's my grandmother. Do you know what I mean? Like Blink is my cousin. You know what I mean? Like, you know, these people, they have the personality traits of people that exist today. They're written very much for their time, but at the same time, they have these very modern nuances and sensibilities. And I just think that is incredible writing. Another thing that I thought that was really interesting about this was the origin of how this came to be. Like I really, you know, came into the series thinking that Green and Walker and Brown had sort of put the story together, shopped it. And I kind of assumed that there would be like a lot of pushback on it. But Image actually came to Sanford Green and asked him for a story like this. And he just kind of had the, yeah, he kind of actually just had the idea in his back pocket, but he didn't really know how to flesh it out. And so he reached out to David Walker and Chuck Brown and the three of them kind of helped to kind of germinate this story and sort of put it together and make it into a reality. And I thought that that was really good on the part of Image to have the foresight to like, okay, like not only do we want to have something different, but to be so open, especially in modern times now with everybody being so afraid of like woke culture and this and that to really like, just be open to a story like that tells this type of a story, the way that it does. Absolutely. Absolutely. And again, that's my, my reluctance, I guess, framing it the way I was is that keyword, you know, that whole woke culture idea. It's, it's a matter of, it's, no, this is craft and this is really well-researched and well-written you know well written stories. From reading comics for so long, there's that kind of like, okay, if you're going to get something, you usually like, you have that, like in, like in cinema, you have that suspension of, of disbelief, you know, you have to kind of like, okay, roll your eyes sometimes and be like, all right, let me just let me keep going to get into this. From page one, you know, by the... <laughs> the book i was already just like all right keep going keep going and it was that thing of by the end of the book i was like damn you know as as somebody who's who's trying to learn the, the writing structure i knew how effective it was because i was already hooked in by the end and so it wasn't just like a you know an easy cliffhanger at the end that's like okay i gotta keep going it's a, it builds this momentum and you're already introduced to the family the dynamics people that you're gonna you're going to be introduced to within the first five books. There's already some mention to that. You know, there's already the mention of, of the loss in 1919, where, you know, a significant amount of the family were devastated, which opens up into something else in the future. But it's that efficiency of storytelling that I thought was, and maybe this is a good way into the cinematic aspect, but it's, you know, I'm used to reading comics and then watching them get adapted to cinema. So you right. see, what doesn't work cinematically that might work in a book. You know, there's sequential things that you can get away with in a book that, that doesn't work so well in cinema. There's nothing in the first five books that I think would need to be cut. And, you know, right. that you could really do that treatment straight to film and, and work, you know? I mean, I mean, the first five stories would be maybe the, the first half or the first act of a bigger, right. of a movie, you know, the first act maybe. Um, but yeah, I, I can see why that got optioned so fast Mm -hmm. (laughs) into film, you know? Right. And I can see why they chose like someone like Regina King to direct it. It's a type of comic that I think as you're reading it, you kind of get pulled into it almost as if you are watching a movie. 
you know, as I was reading these, these first five issues, I could actually hear their voices come off the page. Like they actually lifted off of the page just very naturally. And you're right. There really isn't a lot that you would have to change to make it make sense on screen or make it more palatable or whatever you want to call it. It's just really solid writing all the way through. And you'd mentioned the artwork. I mean, I was just blown away by the color palette and the attention to detail. I think that certain panels accurately capture the sense of action or the sense of suspense. Other uh, panels sort of capture like really joyous moments you know, particularly like those first few pages when they show Harlem and stuff. I have a hard time explaining the comic to people, but as far as like comics that have come out in the past, like, let's say like five years, this is probably at the top for me. Yeah. And, you know, thank you for, for having me reread those, those first five issues. <laughs> Absolutely. So for the second half of this episode, I kind of wanted to delve into dollar value of these comics. So we'll tackle that next. <laughs> Primal warrior Draco Azul is the story of a man who finds a giant robot from ancient Mayan times and uses it to fight giant monsters that are mysteriously appearing all over modern day Mexico. It's a little bit of Godzilla, Power Rangers, and Pacific Rim, all set against the Mexican backdrop for a unique cultural flair. Guys, I've been lucky enough to read the first few issues of this, and so far, I gotta say, I'm loving it. If you're a fan of mecha, kaiju, tokusatsu, or just really cool action comics in general, this is gonna be right up your alley. You can find Primal Warrior Draco Azul on Amazon Kindle and Comixology. Get yours today. All right, so breaking down the dollar value at the time of its initial publishing in 2018 the sticker price was 3.99 now today the average cost of these five issues together is about 47.50 with of course the first issue being uh, much more valuable than some of the other ones the last i checked uh, the first printing of issue number 1 was somewhere in the neighborhood of 200 250 dollars some of the other printings and volumes are quite a bit less, but still highly valuable. And so does this sway your opinion one way or the other about whether or not you should collect this comic? Luckily for me, um, I got in when it was uh, much cheaper. So I got my number one and two signed with a certificate of authenticity. Wow. About 20 bucks. Now, that's not graded. And I know when that gets graded, that'll get a certain label. But, you know, when you have stuff like the Sanford Green variant, which is that like a Akira homage. Yeah. With a, which everybody's been doing since, you know, the Akira bike and the character. Mm -hmm. That one's like in the 500s grade. Wow. You have, yeah, you have the, like the virgin copies that are like up there in like the high 200s as well and stuff like that. Um but, you know, honestly, for me, investment-wise, that makes it worth it. That aside, story-wise, beautiful books, well-written books, those are the types of books that, like, I would probably, and I, I probably will give the, uh, this Christmas as, as graphic novels, uh, which I started doing in the last few years. Um, my friends, which some of them are like, damn you for introducing them to comedy. <laughs> you know what that means monthly. Investment value aside, it's worth collecting. You know, I think they're culturally significant. 
historically significant and just just great pieces of art. Yeah, I have to agree on all counts. Uh, I think as an investor, it's a smart move to try and get a first printing, if not, you know, one of the second printings, obviously one that's well graded, which I still am kind of a noob. You know, when it comes to that, like my Same. all my comics are still in the old, you know, bag and board kind of kind of scenario. Uh, none of them are slabbed. That aside, the quality of these books and the enjoyment that you would get out of them is more than worth a look. Not only the comic book section of it, but, you know, I failed to mention early on that, you know, at the end of each issue, there are a number of articles that are incredibly well-written and relevant, not only to the story at hand, but, you know, also speak on current events and the state of the world as it is now. And so I think that having those things together kind of make these books sort of an intellectual touch point, if that's fair to say. Um, That's that's a great point. 10 years from now, 15, 20 years from now, you know, these are probably going to be the benchmark. We'll compare other books to this one. In rereading some of those, I actually made a note and like saved some of those links in, in my email as like bookmarks to go back and reread the really well thought out pieces. Right on. Well, jumping right into the final section here, it's time for the verdict. Okay, Omar, what's your verdict? Collect or reject? Collect. My verdict is collect and get on it soon because I think once the news about Regina King's production coming back, and I think once we start seeing more of it, um, it's going to jump again. So, you know, if you're not interested in collecting, get the trade paperbacks. As a matter of fact, one through five is collected, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, one through five is collected, uh, family business. But yeah, definitely collect. And my verdict is also going to be a collect. I mean, I probably could have guessed that within the first minute or two of me doing this. I actually wanted to make this issue or this episode my very first episode because I love this comic book so much. I credit this one with actually being the comic that got me back into comics. I kind of fell off for a while, lost interest in American comics, was doing more manga and more stuff like that. But when I got wind of this one, you know, it piqued my interest and it just took my breath away. And since then I've been back in the local comic book store, picking up books like Juke Joint and, and, you know, other, you know, other good books like that, which is something that will, you know, in the next episode, we're going to be talking to Darren Flood and we're going to be reviewing Juke Joint in that episode. So I'm really excited for that. But back to the topic at hand, this is definitely a collect for me. Dollar value aside, this is one of the best books that I've ever owned. I highly recommend it to just about anybody who's interested, not just uh, comic book collectors, but just if you're interested in reading a great story, this would be really, really high on my list of recommendations. Once again, I'd like to thank my guest, Omar Angulo, for being here today. Omar, please tell our audience where they can find you. Currently, my site is being uh, renovated, but if you go to omarangulo.net, it'll direct you to my Etsy site. Uh, You can contact me through there or or through Mark. But yeah, currently omarangulo.net or online as omarangulo13. And of course, I want to thank all of you for listening. If you like what you heard here today, please rate and review this episode. Until next time, this is Mark Withers. Catch you on the next page.
Collector Reject is a production of Press Play Media in association with Bon Keith Sounds. This episode was produced and edited by Mark Withers. Music by Keith Sewell. Bitter Root was created by David F. Walker, Chuck Brown, and Sanford Green for Image Comics. For more information on this and other episodes, visit us at collectorreject.com.